All right, well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Good to see you gathered here with us physically, and good to be together with you guys who are joining us online. Uh, We can't wait to see you guys who are online with us at some point in the future. Uh, But we're going to turn our attention to the Lord and sing to Him and lift our voices. I I know, know we keep drawing attention to the awkwardness that is our life these days. We're wearing these masks, and you know, maybe some of you guys, this is the first time, maybe weren't able to join us last week, but you're going to be singing through a mask this morning. You've done a bunch of different things that you've never done with a mask on before. Today, you're going to sing through one, and that's awkward. It's weird to do that, uh, but God is worthy of our song, even if it's coming through a mask. Uh, so let's try as best we can with the, with the fewer bodies that are normal in here to sing loudly to the Lord, to worship Him, because He's worthy of us to do that, Okay. Let's join in praise. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Lord, we come, we're gathered together to lift up your name. Call on our Savior to fall on your grace. Hear the joyful sound of our offer. We lift our voices. Saints bow down as your people sing. We will rise with you lifted on your wings. And the world will see that our God saves. Our God saves. to you, gather together, to lift up your name, to call on our Savior, to fall on your grace, hear the joyful sound of our offering, as your saints bow down, as your people sing, we will rise with you, lifted on your wings, and the world will our God sing. Joyful sound. Hear the joyful sound. 
lawbreakers and thieves for the worthless the least you have said that our judgment is death for all eternity without hope without rest oh what an amazing mystery what an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. Oh, what an amazing mystery. 
Good morning, church, home and away. We are in the midst of this worldwide pandemic that a sovereign God has specifically meant for our benefit. I believe especially the local church. You know, it's not easy to wrap your mind and your spirit around this because it's, it's so unique. It's completely unexpected. And um, God's people just aren't used to processing the unusual weight associated with this event. I believe that this is a special opportunity for us, his chosen people, to experience the working of the Holy Spirit and what it really means to truly cast your burdens on him. The Lord last week led me to Psalm chapter 55, verse 22, where he says, Cast your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. I believe he's reminding us all in him to set our feet on the solid rock. Stand firm. He promises that you will not be moved and that he will sustain you. We should take comfort in a sovereign and loving father who waits to bear our every fear and burden so that we can find peace in the storm. Where justice and mercy 
verse 4. Turn your eyes to the heavens. Turn your eyes to the heavens. Our King will return for His own. Every knee will bow, every tongue will sound. All glory to Jesus alone. Jesus, here we lift our eyes. Turn our eyes Look away all we see here and turn our eyes Only you hold hope and peace Where can we flee Only you hold mercy and forgive Turn our eyes, turn our eyes to you. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our Adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. Oh Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. We look to you, Jesus. We look to you, the author of life to you, the Savior of our souls, the one who purchased us from the 
debt that we owed to you. You forgave our sin. You filled us with life. You gave us a hope and a future. Lord, this Jesus, we turn our eyes to him. Turn our eyes to you, O Lord. We turn in worship. We turn in awe. We turn in reverence. We turn in obedience. We turn in submission to your lordship. Where we are not turning, Lord, we're, we're sorry, Lord, we confess. Lord, and we turn now. With the help of your Spirit, we turn now to look to you. Lord, all over this room, from wherever we are at home, sitting on our sofas, watching this, interacting with you through your Spirit, Lord, we turn. We turn our attention to you, we turn our affections to you. Would you, would you help us as we turn? Lord, there, there are ways that we are scared to turn, maybe. Scared of what might happen if we turn to this holy and majestic God. Lord, but in Christ, we don't have to be afraid to turn. Lord, in Christ, you, you offer us. You, you, you compel us. Lord, you, you, you commission us to turn to you, to find grace there. Lord, so we turn, turn our eyes to you, O God. Receive our worship, Lord, receive our worship as we listen to your word today, as we give today of our finances, Lord, as we find ways today to serve our family and our friends. Receive this worship, we pray. In your name, amen. Will we continue worshiping? the Lord now by the giving of our tithes and our offerings. And, you know, church, one of the the greatest joys and privileges uh, of a pastor is to see biblical truth being lived out in the lives of God's people. And the words of this song as they ended, um, we adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. We, We have seen You adore the Lord, you behold the Lord, you turn your eyes to the Lord. In the midst of an uncertain time, uh, you have been faithful in your giving. You have been faithful in turning your eyes over to the Lord and trusting your wealth, your finances, your time um, to the Lord. And so we we, we wanted to thank you and, and honor you by how you have displayed your faithfulness in turning your eyes to God. So if you are here... um, church physically with us. Um, you can go ahead and, and give. Um, uh, we've got some giving boxes in the back. You could do that now uh, as I move over to the announcements. And for those of you guys watching online, we've got a number of different ways you can give. Uh, and just you can see them in that slide. Let me go ahead and pray for our giving. And we will got a couple more announcements to, to share with you. And then we'll hear the word. Father, we are Grateful for your work on the cross that we have been singing about, O Lord. We are grateful that you have, in fact, allowed us to come before the courts of heaven and not be turned back, Lord. But you beckon us to come and you receive us faithfully, O Lord, in spite of our unfaithfulness. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the faithfulness that we have seen in our church body, Lord. And we pray that you would stir in our hearts, O Lord, to continue the work of gospel witness and expansion here in the city of New Orleans. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, good morning, everyone here and everyone watching online. My name is Ronald. I'm one of the pastors at the church, and happy Memorial Day weekend to all of you. Uh, This is a a wonderful weekend when we take time to uh, reflect on the um, sacrifice that many of those uh, have made. You know, it's a a unique time in the world uh, to be a a Christian in this land called America. God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty has called you and I to live here and to not live uh, in the 200s where Christians would have been bound uh, under uh, um, oppressive empires or to live in other periods of history uh, under dictators and communist rules, or even today in parts of the world where Christians are being thrown in prisons and jails and tortured for their faith. We live in a free country, and we get to exercise that freedom. We get to gather here uh, as a result of the sacrifice that many brave men and women in our armed forces have paid that ultimate sacrifice for um, for our sake. So thank you if you are a family member of anyone serving uh, active or past in uh, armed forces. We are grateful for your sacrifices. So happy Memorial Day to all of you watching as well. I've got a couple of announcements for you guys. We've been um, promoting our LCC census for a, a number of weeks now. Uh, as God has just brought about growth uh, in our midst, uh, we wanted to take this time to just ask you to go ahead and um, help us by updating your uh, contact info with us. So uh, if you are here with me physically, you could do uh, that right now. So go ahead and pull out, uh, pull out your phone, go to the LCC app there. Uh, Pastor Keith has mentioned a number of different times where, where um, you know, possibly when you get to heaven, you are going to be asked if you read J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And I think the second question that LCC members are going to be asked is, did you download the LCC app on your phone? Uh, so I think one of those two questions may or may not be asked. Uh, that's, by the way, in the book of Second Opinions, chapter 3. Uh, so you're not going to find it in the Bible, uh, at least not in your Bible. But certainly uh, you could do that as I speak. Go ahead and, and um, uh, open up the app. Uh, and for those of you watching as well, help us out by filling out that census just so we have accurate info on you. Two quick announcements. Um, we have a couple of, of family members. We, we, we sang a song earlier that had a line that said, morning turns to songs of praise. Um, we've got two families who, who are in the season of mourning. Um, Jim Canella, Dave Canella's dad, passed away um, this week. And so did Marilyn Zeringer, Steve Zeringer's mom, passed away this week. So would you, church family, pray for both of these families as they are in that season of mourning, that they will, in fact, turn to songs of praise, uh, but that the Lord would come near to them and meet them in their time of need. Uh, So now would be the time when we dismiss the kids. Uh, We are not doing that, but for you guys watching online, now is the time that you can click pause on the live stream. Go get you a fresh cup of coffee, maybe some more orange juice, use the bathroom. We'll wait. Okay, now that you're back, Pastor Keith is going to come up and preach. Good morning. Oh. So good to see real people. Not that you guys aren't real people, you know what I'm saying. All right, you, you are real people as well. These people are like real people on steroids. They're here. What a joy. 
I actually got to visit with a few of you this week for a number of different reasons, so it's just good to be amongst family. Uh, Let's see, while you're turning to Ezra chapter 7, I'll give you a little bit of a head start to find Ezra chapter 7. See, if you're one of those electronic people, you have no problem finding any book of the Bible, do you? You just feed in Ezra, it takes you there. If you have a real Bible, you're going to have to actually know where it is. Small book. If you can find Psalms and back up a few books, you're, you're going to bump into Ezra at the end of the historical writings. Let me just make a little bit of a uh, public service appeal here. Uh, we live in an information age. I'm very mindful of that. Our lives are very affected by that, which means all week this week, you have been swimming in information. And uh, I think it's becoming harder and harder to discern what's the right information and what's not the right information. And I'm not talking politics here. I'm not talking which side of the issue of the day you're on. How many of you guys know that this book frames issues? It frames eternal issues. It frames ultimate issues. And what matters more than anything else is which side of these issues you are on. And so that's, I, I want to pull this moment where we interact with God's word, where we preach God's word out of the information entanglement uh, of all the information. And I say this humbly, just so I know you're going to have to listen to me present this, but God uses the preaching and teaching of his word uniquely in our lives to bring us perspective that you're not going to get watching some news channel or podcast, et cetera, et cetera. So whether you're tuning in with us at home, uh, whether you are gathered here with us this morning, this is a unique moment for your soul. And God can take uh, Balaam's donkey and make words come to life for you. So I'm pretty sure he can use something I'm going to say this morning. All right, so before we read from Ezra chapter 7, which is where we're going to start, we're going to skip around in Ezra a little bit. Ezra is recording the history of God's people returning, right? We've been living in this period called the exile, and we've been living there because we're living in our own exile right now. So I'm intentionally having us live in this part of the scriptures. And just like in our world, there's a moment where return begins to happen. And that's kind of what we feel like, right? There's the talk of the return of the NBA season happening. I'm kind of excited about that personally. Uh, there's the return of shopping malls, apparently started to happen this week. Not very excited about that personally, but if that does something for you, congratulations. Um, we're returning to church, right? There's some returning going on, but I want to pick up what the scriptures are going to speak to us about and take it outside of our COVID world. Yeah, we're going to return to the way we've done life to the routines and rhythms of things that normally described our lives. But I want to grab a principle because, quite honestly, when COVID goes away, there's other issues in our lives that really are much bigger than this issue, and they affect us much more deeply. And maybe you have been in a place where you recognize there's moments for every person, there's moments ultimately for every human being where ultimately our lives need to return to God. It's the biggest return of anybody's life. There are moments individually where we're returning from some place that we've drifted off into. And I think many of us can identify with that, right? 
We've lived in a faraway place. Our walk with God was once one thing, and just over time it's drifted into a place. We kind of live in a foreign land now. We're in exile somewhere. We know some things about God, but, but that time in which God was doing something in our lives, it's over there. It's in the past. I remember those moments. And you and I are aware, there's some pretty significant returns in Scripture. And we're going to look at one today, the exile. The day the prodigal son returns, right? This moment where an individual's life goes from intimacy with his father, walking, living in a promised land, if you will, the wheels come off in his mind and he starts to believe some things that life would be better over here. If I were to change my life and go do it over there, it would be better. And there comes a moment for him where he's going to have to return. Right, when we get to the end of the New Testament, there's a section in the last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 2, where, where Jesus is, is speaking to the churches of the coming generations. And most of them he's calling to return. Right? He's calling out the church in Ephesus saying, you, you have abandoned your first love and he's inviting them to return. He speaks to the Laodicean church and he says, you've become lukewarm. And he's inviting a return to a different place. So listen, we are a people who engaged the need for return in our lives. It's just part of the facts of life. Now I'm looking at real faces and remembering all kinds of stories of interacting with folks. I know, I know some of us have, have had to live through periods of hoping for the return of a wayward son or daughter. Just at some point, the wheels came off, they pulled prodigal, they decided they wanted to believe some things differently and pursued something else with their lives. And you have interacted with this need for a return, maybe a husband or a wife, right? There seems to be lots of folks who are struggling in their marriages these days. And disaffection creeps into marriages and hearts drift from one another. And next thing you know, one of those marriage partners is in a faraway place. And they're not bound to their marriage the same way that they used to be. And now there's a need for return. Do you know generations might need to return? Entire generations might need to return to the Lord. If you follow Jonathan Edwards, who was a, the great, great awakening preacher from the 1700s, he prayed and desperately longed for a day of return where the generation of the church in his day was so nominal and so uninterested in the things of God that he cried out as a pastor that they would return in their lives. And those voices are still here today in our world. Does our current church need to return to something much greater than what we have, much greater than what we've known, much greater than what Lakeview Christian Center has experienced? Does God have something much greater for us in these categories? I think about voices like David Platt, who wrote a book a number of years ago called Radical. Maybe some of you guys came across the book Radical. Loved, I love the subtitle to that. Taking your faith back from the American dream. Right? He, he observed, and he's written another book called Something's Gotta Change. That's his most recent book. Right? David stares out a bit prophetically into the realm of what church looks like and says, something's gotta change here. Just the way the church has figured out the way to be church and do church. There's more. And there's a return 
that needs to take place. How many of you guys have heard of Francis Chan? He's another popular voice currently. Francis' last book is called Letters to the Church. He kind of picked up a little bit of that from the Revelation letters. Francis, in that book, tells the story of being a, a very successful pastor in a, in a fast-growing megachurch uh, in the San Francisco area and how God just began to do some things in him differently about what he thought the church was supposed to be really experiencing. This wasn't because he wasn't gathering people. He wasn't experiencing life among them. But he knew there was more, and he stepped away from that church and, and just began to pursue something else, wrote this book that's calling the church to something more. So how many of you guys would join me as a pastor who is concerned that future generations are being set up for something much less? Some of you older guys that are here are watching the church be set up for something much less than what some of us knew years ago in it. And there's room for a return, right? But how does return happen? How does, how does that actually take place? How do we go from a faraway place to a place where God wants us to be under his blessing, right? And so, you know, if you're waiting for a son or a daughter to return, you know that there's... there's there's stubbornness at work. There's anger at work in their life. There's, there's this defiance, don't tell me what to do thing happening. You keep bumping into that, and, you, and that makes you lose faith. Of, Is this person ever going to return? Marriages that have separated are, are full of disaffection and selfishness. That when you bump into that, and it's big, and that, that disaffection is there, and it's loud, and that person's not interested or not motivated, you can say return is next to impossible. Or, or, you know, talking about everybody else. How about, how about in your own soul? How about you? Have you ever bumped into your own unwillingness, your own lack of motivation, your own dullness, your own, yeah, I know I should read my Bible, I just can't seem to get motivated? That, that's pretty big stuff, isn't it? And you can stay in place for a long time and feel like, I don't know what's going to ever cause me to return. Well, listen, these guys that we've been visiting, these exiles we've been visiting, the year is 539, we read from Daniel uh, last week, the next thing after Daniel's revelation is they are actually going to return. But don't for a second think that that was an easy thing to do. They had gotten comfortable in the land in which they lived. They were welcomed as citizens. Many of them had set up shop and they were doing quite well. And then there was the issue of going back to a land that was a thousand miles away. I think I've got a, a little map here to give you an idea about what this part of the world looked like. You know, they would have been over in Susa and the, the Persian Empire there and the Babylonian Empire has been overthrown now. You have the Persian Empire and they're living in Susa. It's a long way back to Jerusalem. It's over a thousand mile journey across a wilderness, hostile forces, and you're going to take people out into no man's land and, and you're going to care for them how? How many are going to die along the way? How will their needs get met? And when you get back there, remember the land has been laid desolate for 70 years. Other people have moved into the land. There's other governments in the area now. There's other armies in the area now. You're going to go back. There's marauders and there's squatters. And you're going to show up in what used to be your house and somebody else is going to be living there. Right, so this is in the mind of the people as they go back. It's not like, ah, we're going to return. This is going to be so easy and everything's just going to be fun the whole way. I mean, it's like Disney World, right? Uh, no, this is like some dystopian movie. You're going to go back to everything is burned to the ground. And you have 
no money, no influence, no power. Nothing looks favorable in this moment. So that can be how your life and my life feels when God steps in and says, time to move. Time to have a turning point in your life. Things are about to change. And what I want to see here today is, I want you to see the ingredients of what is happening when that sort of thing takes place. Because it puts our attention in the right spaces, right? So I love this passage. It's, it's a good summary passage. Ezra chapter 7, as you see on that map there, there was some multiple returns, right? You had the first wave of returns record, recorded in Ezra chapter 1. 80 years later is Ezra chapter 7. So, so don't get acting like this has just all happened at once, which that clues me in a little bit. You had a wave of people return in Ezra chapter 1. The next wave is 80 years later. Hmm. Why would you wait 80 years? Right? Apparently, it wasn't a lot of postcards back from Jerusalem like, come on, guys, the water's great, jump in. Right? So they waited another 80 years, and then there's another delay before Nehemiah. Uh, has the return where he rebuilds the wall. But in Ezra 7, here's the, here's the ingredients to return. And this is going to be true for us as well. Ezra 7, verse 27. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Right? I'm going to unpack all these ingredients in just a second. We'll see what it was that he put there to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let's pray together. Father, I know each of us have our own little sub-story of exiles, of places that maybe we've been doing life that feel like returning is next to impossible. A relationship being restored, a broken situation overcoming all the obstacles, our own willingness. Now, we just feel unmotivated and distant and been around this mountain a few times. But Lord, when you step in, There's hope, and there's confidence, and there's certainty, and there's power, and there's things working behind the scenes. God, would you inform us today? There's so much more going on in and around our lives than just what we're doing. So God, give us eyes to see this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In all walks of life, ingredients matter, right? come from an engineering background, so I'm kind of hung up on the way things are built, what they're made of. I was, I was taught that. I was taught that that matters, right? I, I know the difference between making a bridge that goes over the Mississippi River out of tin and making it out of steel. I, I, I know a little bit about that. Uh, there are ingredients to everything going on in your life. I live around ingredients. My wife loves to cook. My wife loves to bake. And, and I had no idea how important certain ingredients were to the food that she'd make. Because if it's there or not there, what a difference it's going to make. So if you're a baker or a cook, you know. Ingredients matter. 
So I don't, I don't want, and, and this is my, a great concern, right? We're, we're pulling into a section. I've said this a few times now. We're pulling into a section. Ezra probably has not been read very much by the average Christian. I don't spend a lot of time in Ezra. People just don't. Uh, we're going to pull up some thoughts from Isaiah. We probably don't spend a lot of time in Isaiah, but there's some things here to know that have everything to do with whether you're going to be confident that God is going to come through in your life. Or whether or not you've turned your Christian life into a set of ideal values that it's all up to you as to how well you can pull this off. And that's easy to do. But... We're going to meet the main character in the Bible here, and we're going to meet some things about what God does, and it's going to inform us. Right? So I want to identify four ingredients here that are in this passage. Right? In verse 27, we have this God who's going to put something, stir something into the heart of the king. Right? So our first ingredient is going to be God stirs the hearts of men. That's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two, I'm going to call it covenant favor because... Ezra's going to highlight how God extended to me his steadfast love. That word steadfast love, when you find it throughout the scriptures, you'll also find it translated loving kindness. It is the Hebrew word chesed. It's the word associated with the covenant love of God. A, a love that God has because God sat down, I'm going to make this up, but God sat down in a room before any of us existed, before any of our lives went good or bad and, and made a deal with himself. And promised that he was going to do certain things to himself. And made a covenant that he included us in. I know that sounds kind of weird, right? But, but you understand, if God had made the deal with you. Or me. Whether it will ever come to pass, then it depends on God. But unfortunately, it also depends on me as well. It's going to make good. If God's going to ever do his part, I'm going to have to do my part. But see, God made a covenant with himself. And then he hid us in Christ from ages past so that he could make sure his plan would come about. Isn't that amazing? That's the God of the Bible. And with that, that's what that word loving kindness. God extended to me his loving kindness. His everlasting love. That's covenant favor, right? So that's the second ingredient. The third is this courage that he describes. I took courage. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of outside of what's revealed in, about Ezra. Um, hey, Ezra, why did it take you so long to get this together and go? Well, you know, I, I'm pretty sure, like all of us, I mean, how much, how much fear right now is in returning in the land of COVID that we're living in? How much fear is there? I mean, you guys are at home. How much fear is there? I mean, how much fear is there that you've been, I don't even know if I'm ready to show up for church or not. You know, I don't know if I'm ready to go out yet. I mean, there's a lot of fear in the land. And can, when you think, when I describe to you what it would look like to go back to Jerusalem, can anybody agree they had some reasons to be afraid? I don't know if that's a good idea to go there. I'm afraid to do that. So Ezra one day, though, finds himself with this courage that's leapt into his own heart. And not only into his own heart, but he's going to find it in the hearts of others when he goes to do this. And we're going to learn from the scriptures that God puts that there. Right, so ingredient four, three is courage. Ingredient four is we're going to take action. Now, 
Isn't that the one that we're worried about, right? Let's return. Let's do something. Let's restore our marriage. Let's restore our lives. Let's let, we're, look, we're looking for that fourth thing, but can you make sure and not leave out the other three ingredients? Because if all you're doing is just saying, oh, that person needs to do this. Oh, that person, I need to do this. And that's all we're seeing. We're leaving out the most encouraging and helpful awareness in scripture that there's a God who stirs hearts, that his covenant favor comes to his people, that he can put courage into our lives, and then we will take action, right? So that's what's in this passage. It's rich, right? So let's just take that apart and start with that first ingredient. God stirs the hearts of men, right? So we back up 80 years to Ezra chapter one. Here's, here's the first example in Ezra of this stirring of hearts. The first return is about to take place. Verse one, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. I love who's featured in doing the acting here. In order that the word given to Jeremiah, who gave that word? God gave that word. So God has said something is going to take place. And then when it goes to take place, it takes place because God messes with Cyrus. Cyrus, and listen, this is an example of God using means. Right, it just doesn't, right? God's got a will and it just kind of happens with no explanation. No, you know why they go back to Jerusalem? Because the king of Persia sends them back. Well, why did he do that? Because God stirred his heart so that he made a proclamation. We'll read a little bit of proclamation later. The proclamation is amazing. This guy's got no vested interest in, in any good thing happening back in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, he's got a lot of reasons why not. If, you, if you're curious and do some devotions this week in Ezra, read Ezra chapter 4. It's written by the, there's a little letter in there back to the king that's written by the set, people who have settled in that land. And when the Jews show up and start rebuilding, they get all freaked out and write a letter to the king saying, uh, dear king, I don't think you want to let these people rebuild this city. And let us tell you why. This is what they were like before. This is what their kings were like before. This is the problems that they're going to present. They're not going to pay your taxes. They're going to have their own army. They're going to go to war with you. This is what they've done in the past. You don't want these people to rebuild. But apparently Cyrus does. He's got no reason to want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Except one. God stirred his heart. Right? Verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Where did the courage come from? Where, where did these volunteers come from? Where were the people now saying, hey, let's cross the wilderness. I don't know how we'll do it, but let's go. Let's go rebuild. I, I, I don't know what we'll build with when we get there, but let's go. Where did that come from? God shows up and stirs their hearts so that they are in agreement with God's purpose. So whether you are Cyrus with your reasons of a hostile nation being on the borders of your empire, and you have reasons not to go, or you're the people with your fears and you're, and you're settled, 
And how many of you guys know you're, you're about to get settled in the land of COVID? When you got to go back, you're not going to probably like it. Right? There's ways of doing stuff right now that I think most of us are kind of like, oh, I'm starting to kind of dig this. And then there's going to be this return thing that's going to interfere with some of that. Now, well, they're going through something like that just on a massive scale, much bigger than ours. And so whatever fears, whatever issues have to be overcome, God is going to do something here. But why does Cyrus, I want to to give you a little bit of Cyrus's background. Why does Cyrus cooperate with this? Isaiah chapter 44. Turn there with me. Isaiah 44, verse 21, and realize the time frame that we're about to read from. All right, so they're returning. Zerubbabel's return, Ezra's description, is 539 B.C. Back up about 200 years, and you get this place in Scripture in Isaiah. So Isaiah's a prophet. Before everything goes really, really bad, right? He's 100 years plus removed from Nebuchadnezzar showing up and burning everything to the ground. So... Things are about to get much worse in this moment, but listen to what God is saying to his people about what you're about to go through and who I'm going to be to you in that moment. And listen to what he says about Cyrus. Verse 21, Isaiah 44. God says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now, please go with me here. Their lives before they return are going to get much worse before they get better. This is why it's so important that God made a covenant deal with himself. Because if God is standing here with Isaiah saying, hey guys, I've got some great plans for you. I want to do some incredible things in your life. But if you don't do this and this and this, deal off. I'm not going to do it. Well, in the year 730 or so, when Isaiah writes this, they're only going to become more ungodly and more ungodly and more ungodly and more ungodly until God reaches for a guy named Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, go over there and burn the place to the ground and and pull those guys over into exile. But this is what God said leading into that moment. He said, you're my people. I formed you. You're my servant. I've blotted out your transgressions. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Don't you love that God is calling for them to return to him before they become bigger jerks than they already are? And yet he is giving an invitation for them to return. Verse 23, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. I guarantee it. He will be glorified. Sing and shout. Listen, did you come in here this morning in the mood to sing and shout? How many of you guys watching at home? I don't know. How'd you do? How'd you do? Is Eric led us into the presence of God and singing? We were singing. We sing it loud. Are you shouting because 
in spite of all the stuff about our lives and our world that's not back in place right now, in spite of what you're waiting for, maybe you're waiting for a spouse to come home, a child to come home, something about life, you're waiting for that thing to return. Listen, at this moment when Isaiah speaks, there's a lot of waiting going on here. But there's a lot of singing and shouting taking place right now while you're waiting. Am I I waiting for God to put everything into the sight category? So that, you know, I don't see anything by faith. I just see it by sight. So once everything changes and it goes back to normal and I can feel like I can breathe again and predict my future, then I'm going to sing and I'm going to be amazed at God. Is that, am I waiting for that? These people sang and they were called to sing out of a perspective that was invading their darkness. You're in a dark place, Israel, and you're going to be in a dark place for another couple of hundred years. But sing now. Shout now. Because the reasons for us to sing and shout aren't about our circumstances. It's about our God. It's about who he's going to be, who he's always going to be to us. So so don't wait to write a song because the events in life have finally become something I like and I'll write a song I'm inspired. This calls for us to sing because we see who God is. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Listen, I am not challenged by the coronavirus. I am not impressed. I am not on my heels. I am not freaking out. I made everything. The coronavirus borrows the molecules I made to exist. To accomplish my purposes. That's why that thing is there. Verse 25. Who frustrates the signs of liars. And makes fools of diviners. Who turns wise men back. And makes their knowledge foolish. Who confirms the word of his servant. And fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem. She shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah. They shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Now, you understand this is 730 or so B.C. There aren't any ruins yet. The place hasn't been burned to the ground yet. So what is this word from Isaiah speaking of? It's speaking of the day that Ezra's living in, that you're going to return, and you're going to rebuild the ruins, because I've said that's exactly what's going to happen. And that's exactly what what Ezra does. Verse 27, God says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus. This is 200 years before anybody knows that guy's name. Cyrus is a Persian king before there is a Persian empire that God knows who he's going to be. And calls him by name. Who says of Cyrus. Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. That's that's what he's going to say one day. That guy, Cyrus, who's got no reason to say any of this stuff, is going to say exactly that, God says, 200 years before he says it. Then in verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, 
to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Why, why does Cyrus do what Cyrus does? Because of God. Listen, do you understand that if you've got a Cyrus in your life, who you are dependent upon them doing the right thing, and you pull this out of the equation, you are a miserable human being right now. Do you understand that? If there's a Cyrus who's got no reason to do anything on your behalf and in your life, he's got no motivation to do that, and you stare at him day in and day out, and you wait for him to do something that's going to benefit you, to take your interest to heart, to adjust his plan for the sake of your need, and you wait and you wait and you wait. Listen, I'm talking husbands here and wives. I'm talking your children. I'm talking the power people in your life, whether your bosses, whoever they are. If you got a Cyrus in your life and you don't know that the Bible speaks about people like this and what God does in your life, you got a miserable circumstance on your hands, don't you? Because the only thing you can do is try to persuade them, sell them, manipulate them, control them, uh, beg them, buy them off. And it's, it's all about what you can do, and you, none of that seems to be working, so you're hopeless. But what if that person is going to do exactly what God moves on their heart to do in the moment that he calls on them to do it? What if that's how your world operates? What if behind the scenes, right? This is why I said don't skip the first three ingredients. If all you know is I need Cyrus to do something, all right, did you recognize the first three ingredients? That before he does something, you're going to need God to move on his heart for him to do what he's going to do. Right, a couple of scriptures full of these examples. They're just good for us to know. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 said, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Do you know God has that kind of power? You know, the Bible actually says God does that kind of stuff in people's lives. We obviously know that because Cyrus is a screaming example of that. And listen, this works for your own issue too. Right? When you get in touch with the fact there's stuff in you that's unwilling, you don't want to do certain things. Do you know that about yourself? The people around you know that about you. Do you know that about you? Do you know there are certain things you will avoid no matter what? You don't enjoy doing it, so you just avoid it. You're scared to death of it, so you avoid it even more. I'm so grateful that this verse is in the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How do any of us ever become willing to do whatever it is that God wants us to do? To return, to turn to him, to overcome some... Well, it's God who's at work in us. To have a will and a desire to actually do what he's called us to do. This, this is hugely important. That, that word there that's there in, in Ezra is the word stirred, where he stirred the hearts of men. That word actually in other places in scriptures, it's translated awakens. He awakened 
There's an awakening dimension here. I like that word, right? We have that word in our church history, right? The great awakening. What was was that referring to? This moment when people were in this state of slumber and God showed up and suddenly they woke up. They woke up to God. They weren't interested in God moments before. They had no relationship with God. There was no pursuit of God. But then suddenly that changed. God interrupted their world. They wanted to know something about God. They wanted to pursue something about God. Right? We have a great account of a, the Great Awakening led by a man named Jonathan Edwards who was extremely aware of this awakening dimension. Right? A little thought about Jonathan Edwards' life from Dr. Stephen Nichols. He says, Jonathan Edwards' first letter, which he wrote, I think he was about 12 or 13, quite honestly, he was a little ahead of his time. Jonathan Edwards' first letter was an account of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. First letter he writes is he'd observed God poured out his Spirit and affected people. And he writes a letter back home about that. His first published sermon was a clear proclamation of the sovereignty of God in the work of redemption. Right? What God does to bring these things about. His first book chronicled a revival, awakening was a dominant theme of the life and ministry of Jonathan Edwards. You could say awakening comes in two forms. There is the awakening, the raising of new life out of death. This is the call to poor sinners. But even those who have been awakened need awakenings. We slumber in our spiritual laziness. And so we are summoned to wake up. This is a call to redeemed sinners, and it's not by human effort or by natural means. We are awakened only and always by a divine and supernatural light, only by God's grace and always for God's glory. There is the awakening, which I, I, hope, I hope we as a church are very concerned about this hour in which we're living and praying and asking God for that kind of an awakening where the world is getting a lesson in fragility, how fragile their life is, how quickly things could change and you could lose everything from your life to your belongings to the things that you treasure and hope for. These are moments where people take a step back and get in touch with their own limitations and fears. In that moment, oh God, I hope you're praying this way. Guys at home, I hope you're praying this way. Oh God, bring an awakening of people's lives to you. Listen, this is the land of return. As a Christian who's traveling through this land as a permanent exile, right? This is never going to be my home. Much as I can build here, I'm going somewhere else. There's a place being prepared for me in glory. This is not my home. Don't get your roots too deep here. Don't get too dependent on building your kingdom here. So as I travel through this time, God, let there be an awakening in this hour of people returning to you. And I don't mean you guys who are watching at home or maybe you're tuning in, you're not part of our church, but you're just watching. What does that look like? 
Well, I could probably call a bunch of people who are standing here today who could tell you the day that they came awake. They, they came alive to God. I came alive to God in February of 1979. I didn't become aware of God in 1979. I didn't get some new ideas just about God at that moment. I, I came alive to God. It's like the God that I knew about, the God that I had information about, just didn't motivate me on a daily basis. He didn't interfere with my life. He stayed in his place, and I did my life. And I tried to have a few moral boundaries, but I think that was just to stay out of jail or to win favor with certain people. You know, I figured out you get decent grades, you get applauded. You know, you're a good athlete, you get applauded. So I practice hard, I study a bit. I'm not sure that had anything to do with God. It wasn't like I got an A and then turned around, oh, God, this was for your glory. Uh, You gave me every ability. Scored a bucket in the basketball game. God, oh, it's all for your glory. I wasn't living that way. I just enjoyed doing the things I enjoyed doing. But I, I, I believe a God existed. I acknowledge a lot of things about that God. I went to church. But in February of 1979, I came alive to God, and all of a sudden, it felt a little bit more curious and obsessive, and I wanted to know more, and I had an appetite for something, and and I saw God everywhere in every aspect of my life. God was present here, and he was present there, and he had a purpose, and he was near, and he cared for me, and he imparted things to me, and and there was affection and life that was there, and I wanted to know. I wanted to read. I wanted to be around other people who had had this experience, too. So so listen, if everything I just described does not describe your experience with God, then there is a need for the ultimate great awakening to take place in your own heart. And maybe this is a time when God's doing that for you. He's awakening your life to him. But for those of us who have already been awakened to God, you know, there there are awakenings that take place in our lives where God steps into our, our dullness, our distance, our own personal exiles where we're, we're far removed from the things that God has been doing and wants to be doing in our lives. And we've deprioritized those things. And God steps into that and awakens us. Remember what God said to Isaiah's, the people through Isaiah. He said, you are my people. I formed you. Return to me. So, so apparently you can belong to God and you still need in your own life a sense of returning to God. And that might be many of us in this season. God is wanting a greater return. And I'm going to touch on the last four ingredients really fast. Let me spend a little bit of time in in the second one, then I'll fly through the last two. This idea about God's covenant favor being on our lives, right? Pick that up in verse 28 of Ezra 7. Ezra says, God extended to me his covenant love, his steadfast love, before the kings and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. Right? Ezra is about to head back, and he's going to need some help to do that. He's going to need some aid to do that. He needs resources that he doesn't have. He's going to need some favor from somebody who's going to have to do him a favor. And you're going to see here, right, that God awakened the hearts of a bunch of people to do Ezra a favor. Because there is this thing about Ezra's life. Ezra has a special deal with the God of the universe. God is strangely on Ezra's side. 
Do you, do you get up in the morning with that awareness as a child of God? That you're just not another human being on the earth? That you have a special deal with God? Is that weird to say that? You feel like you almost like feels weird to say that to other people. It's like, yeah. Well, you know, the humble reality is you have a special deal with God, not because of anything about you. That's kind of humbling, right? Not like God said, oh, Keith is awesome. Oh, let's pick him. Let's pick him. When we go to play heavenly basketball, let's pick him. Yeah. No, God picks us for reasons in himself that are gracious and merciful. So you and I never have to qualify for that, and we're never better than anybody else when God picks us. But he does, and he makes a special deal. If you don't get this, you just think you're another human being on the earth. You are in a special category with God, and therefore, certain favor is going to come your way. Right? Listen to what this favor sounds like. Let me just fly through this or read quickly with me. Right? Ezra chapter 1, I've already visited here. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, right? So there's favor part number one. The king over the empire is saying, all you guys, go home. Get your stuff and go back to Jerusalem. You don't have to stay here anymore. All the other kings before me, you had to stay here. Nobody got to go anywhere, but you get to go home. Favor number one. Whoever's among all the people, may his God go with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of, this, of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." So not only does Cyrus send them home, he bankrolls their trip. He says, I'll tell you what, I know you guys got nothing. Wherever you end up landing, wherever those people, they're going to pay you to rebuild Jerusalem. Go ahead and go. Got you covered. Is this favor? These guys got nothing in their bank account. They got zilch. They're leaving to go back to Jerusalem. They don't have a wagon. They got a horse. They got nothing. Until Cyrus turns around. And God has moved on his heart and he generously provides for everything they're going to need. And then another king, Darius in the Persian Empire, later on, Ezra chapter 6, says this, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Can you imagine the government turn around and say, whatever the church needs, we're paying for it. Can you imagine, would you think, oh my, wow, that's weird favor. Right, you got a need? Oh, you need, to, you need to build a new church? Oh, well, you know, taxes from the city will pay for that. Don't worry about it. Can you imagine? This is what's happening. And then he says, whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven 
and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. So everybody pay for this little group to go. And if any of you mess with them, we're going to go ahead and nail you to a beam out in front of your house and let the rest of your house just rot away. That's favor, isn't it? That's divinely ordered favor. And there's a little phrase that pops up. Ezra's going to use it over and over and over again in Ezra 7 and Ezra 8. Upon this return, he uses the hand of the Lord was with us. The hand of the Lord. He used to use that phrase more in the Christian world. God's hand was on me. The hand of God was with me. And well, that's what he describes, right? Ezra 7, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. The God of Israel had given him the king, granted him all that he asked because the hand of the Lord was on him. Right? And those other three examples that are in your outline, if you get your notes at home, Ezra 8, two more examples where the hand of the Lord was on him. The hand of the Lord protected them as they traveled. The hand of the Lord gave them expedient travel to get back home. The hand of the Lord provided for them a Levite when they needed one particular man to come with them on the journey. The hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was on their life, accomplishing things so that they could fulfill the call God had for them. All right, so question. Am I and are you living a life that needs, needs and looks to the hand of the Lord to be on your life? Or am I only willing to do the things in my life that I think I can pull off? I can, I can do that. I've done that before. I know that. That's my specialty. That suits my personality. I'm comfortable with that. I could do that. Or am I living a life that requires the hand of God's favor is going to need to be on my life because there are going to be moments when the only reason why this is going to go well is because God just showed up and stirred people's hearts and moved the furniture around so that life could become whatever it is that he's called it to be in my life. Do you ever hear, we live in an age of incredible natural reasonings. There's so many natural reasons for why people do what they do. So people are thinking through, should you have a child? Should you have children, couples? Should you have, should you have another child? Right? And the first thing you start to think about is how expensive and how hard. Okay, yeah. That probably should come into your equation at some point. I want to think realistically about that. And then when you survey how much money you have and how much energy you have, then you come up with your answer. Is that how that works? What if God's calling you to do that? Well, I don't know if I could do that. That's hard. This is in the daily spaces of our lives. What if God's calling you to rebuild your marriage? And you've got this long list of all the things that your spouse is just terrible at. All the ways that you clash and collide. All the ways that they were raised one way, you were raised another. I mean, you've got a list that says this is never going to work. And you survey all of your abilities to make that work. And you go, I can't do this. Is, is that how we're supposed to live? Or am I supposed to be aware that the hand of God is on my life, that he can 
stir my heart, stir my spouse's heart. He can stir people's lives up in my world. He can do things. He can protect me if I'm threatened. He can provide for me. How many people don't tithe because they can't get to the end of the month? I just, I'm just not going to tithe. I just, that, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't make sense for me. All right, well, how did you figure that out? Well, I looked at how much bills I had, and I looked at how much money I had coming in, and I can't get those two things to agree, so I've created something else. Have you thought for a moment that for you to live in the space God's called you to live in, it's going to take the hand of God's favor on your life for you to be able to live in that space? These guys aren't going back to the promised land unless the favor of God is on their life. They've got nothing. And when they get back there, they're going to have worse than nothing. They're going to have a hostile group of people who don't want them back and who are going to find reasons to undermine and oppose them. But the hand of God's favor is going to be on their lives and he's going to do crazy, miraculous stuff around them. All right, so let me finish. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up. You have to tune into another broadcast for us to get to the other ingredients. All right, so given that, what if, what if we are living out God's purpose with an awareness that God moves on the hearts, our own heart and the hearts of others to accomplish his task, that God's favor is upon our lives because we are his covenant children So expect that God will show up in the spaces of your life and do some things. I think when that begins to happen and the Spirit of God is at work, there is a courage that comes to us. But that courage isn't just a reasoning courage. Those are two reasons. The Bible speaks about courage and boldness coming to us because the Holy Spirit comes to us, that we get strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man. Can anybody tell me exactly what's going on right there? Because I'd love to know. I just know the Bible says there's an inner part of me that the Holy Spirit somehow climbs in there, rewires a few things, flips a switch, and boom, all of a sudden there's something in me that's courageous. Right? The meeting, Acts chapter 4 meeting where the Holy Spirit falls on the people and, the, and God is amongst this first century church and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. What happened there? Well, the Holy Spirit just jumped on the inside. So you and I assess our lives. Can we return? Can there be a turning point? Can we go in a different direction? I'm afraid to do that. Can can you trust God to put his hand of favor on you and produce a courage in you to do things that you would never have done on your own? And then that last thing, number four, happens. We actually do what it is that God's called us to do. Now listen, I I did this on purpose because it's in the scriptures here, but these four ingredients, these first three that I spent all this time in, are, sometimes are silent. All we're left with in Christianity is there are certain things you're supposed to do. How about you get about doing them? And I preach a message on what you should do, what you should stop doing, and do, do, do. And the Bible has us doing things, so I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong to do. But what a difference it makes to be aware of these other three ingredients, right? When I go to do what God's called me to do. 
He's been at work for hundreds of years behind the scenes, preparing for his will to take place in my life. His hand of favor is upon my life, so I can expect being surprised with how God shows up and things go the way they're supposed to go in my life. This is the God we get introduced to in this moment from Ezra and in this exile. And listen, I know the COVID thing is is in front of us. But how many of you guys would agree you got bigger issues to return than the COVID thing, right? COVID thing's just a weird anomaly in our culture. But you may have some bigger issues in your life that for you to return, for you to have a significant turning point right now, you're going to need these ingredients. I need to be aware of them. So let's do this. Let's, let's stand up together. If you guys are at home, you can, you can stand up too if you'd like. But, but here's, here's the moment in the preaching of God's word that, that I want to be in touch with how is my heart digesting this. I, I sure hope that, that we're just not waiting for this prayer to be done so that we can just get, we got a lot to do today. It's Sunday, got stuff. I hope that's not where we are right now. I hope what we're doing is we're, we have this holy moment with God where God wants to meet with us through the preaching of his word. And he wants to bring us something into our world. So right now, I want you to get in touch with whatever it is that needs to return in your life, whatever thing God has appointed for there to be a significant turning point in your life. And maybe this is it right here. And as you think about venturing into following God into that moment, you need these ingredients. But what is that moment for you right now? What is it? We bow our heads and just let the Holy Spirit use your name and speak to you personally. You guys at home, just... Somehow shut out everybody else right now. Just you and God, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Lord, there are moments in this room. There are moments for our folks at home. For some, Lord, it's a, it's a big return. It, it's, it's a call to a, a wayward son or daughter, a prodigal who's been living life in a faraway land. Maybe it's a prodigal husband or wife who somehow got convinced by a different set of ideas that if I could just do life this way with a different person in a different place, life could be something great for me. And Lord, by your grace, those seasons come to a moment where we get to rethink that. God, that's gracious of you. Maybe for some here today or watching, they're rethinking that moment. And the idea of returning, they don't know if they can do that. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I want to do that. I've got all these questions to go back to that. I don't know. There's this, there's that, there's this, there's that. Or maybe there's fear involved. God, thank you that you didn't leave this story out of the scriptures. Ezra leads a people who feel just like that. And yet they walk in trust and in hope of you being their covenant God who will go before them into the hearts of other people, into their own hearts to give them courage and faith. 
God, that's who you have shown yourself to be. That's who you wanted us to realize you are to us today. So God, would you let your grace pour into our lives right now? Would you let these other ingredients leap off the page for us? Would you let courage be found in our lives? God, would you awaken us to the things that you have for us? All right, closing thought, especially for you guys maybe watching about the great awakening. You know, what what are we returning to? What do you ultimately hope your life is going to return to? Well, there is no bigger return than us as human beings returning our lives to God, recognizing God, you created this. And it's, it's yours and it's for purpose that you had for me. And I've been using it for something else. So with a little bit of courage that you're giving me, I'm going to entrust this back to you. I'm going to give it to you. And I trust you the rest of my life with it. That's the ultimate great awakening. And if you've never done that, you can do that right now. You and God can have a conversation where you entrust your life to him. He's going to be this God to you when you do that. He's going to go before you. He's going to work in people's lives around you. He's going to perform his purpose in your life because you're his. And there's a special relationship he has with you from this day forward where he is going to be at work in your life. So if you'd like to do that, tell him you want him to come into your life. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to restore your life to him and to have his life come to live. Just ask him to do that right now. You can do that. Just ask him. And from this moment forward, that God's going to lead you. He's going to be involved with you. And I can remember the rest of my days after 1979 were, I was aware of God, delighting in God, knowing God, growing in knowing God. And God will do that in your life too. Well, guys, thank you so much for being with us today, venturing in masks and all. I'm sure right now at this point, I'm not trying to discourage anybody from coming on Sunday, but the mask thing, it's a little warm, isn't it? A little warm, right? I mean, I was like up about 10 degrees and I'm like, can't wait to preach. I mean, I get hot when I preach, but I couldn't wait to just get some air. So it's not like we don't love each other, but I know everybody wants to run outside the door and get some air. Uh, but listen, if you, if you want to come next week, again, you just go to our website. Uh, I think middle of the week you can go there and you can register, pick a chair for you and your family, uh, for you to be able to be here with us. We're looking forward to being able to open up for a lot more to come. Hopefully that's coming in about a week or so. We'll, we'll see. But for now, loving seeing you guys at 9 and at 11 on Sundays. We love you much. We love you guys. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.